Our first reading, that's John chapter 10, starting at verse 11. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this sheepfold. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life, only to take it up again. No, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my father. The Jews who heard these words were again divided, Many of them said, he is demon-possessed and raving mad. Why listen to him? But others said, these are not the sayings of a man possessed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Our second reading is from Hebrews chapter 13, starting at verse 7. Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. It is good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace, not by eating ceremonial foods, which is of no benefit to those who do so. We have an altar from which those who minister at the tabernacle have no right to eat. The high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering, but the bodies are burned outside the camp. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore. For here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess his name. And do not forget to do good and to share with others, for with such sacrifices, God is pleased. Have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. Do this so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no benefit to you. Pray for us. We are sure that we have a clear conscience and desire to live honorably in every way. I particularly urge you to pray so that I may be restored to you soon. Now may the God of peace who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. 
Brothers and sisters, I urge you to bear with my word of exhortation. For in fact, I have written to you quite briefly. I want you to know that our brother Timothy has been released. If he arrives soon, I will come with him to see you. Greet all your leaders and all the Lord's people. Those from Italy send you their greetings. Grace be with you all. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray and work our way through this text. Let's pray together. Father, this is the last time we'll say this, but this, is, this book, uh, this book of Hebrews is meat, not milk. Um, and so I pray that you'll feed us now, nourish us and sustain us through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. So how to conclude a series in the book of Hebrews, part two. We split the conclusion over two weeks because here be much gold. This is the final sermon in our series in this remarkable book. And we're concluding the book of Hebrews the way the book of Hebrews concludes. That is with straight talking wisdom from above with only one tricky section about going to Jesus outside the camp. What's that? I'll explain that in a moment's time. The whole book is pastoral wisdom for those of us who find ourselves a bit wobbly in our faith from time to time, but it's especially written to people who are suffering for their faith in Jesus. But I take it, if they can stay Christian with prison terms, then maybe we can too with our relatively easier lives. Now, it's not been an easy book to work through. We said at the very beginning of the series that treasure is rarely found at the mouth of a cave. Well, for those who've been here week by week, we're well and truly deep in the cave. The writer of Hebrews calls the book of Hebrews a word of exhortation. You can see that right there in verse 22. I urge you to bear with my word of exhortation. That's what the whole book is. For in fact, I've written to you quite briefly. I personally would like to have seen the extended version myself. It's therefore a pastoral letter with imperatives. I'll give you some examples. Chapter 3, verse 7, to, tonight, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Or 12, verse 25, see to it that you do not, do not refuse him who speaks. That is God. And right here, ironically, I urge you, there's an imperative, to bear with my word of exhortation. And many more like this. There are commentators who call the writer of Hebrews the pastor throughout their commentary on Hebrews. They say the pastor says this, the pastor says that. Two practical examples of such exhortations from last week, that is a reprise. Here are two of them, they're on the screen. Third in verse two, do not forget to show hospitality to strangers. There's the hospitality exhortation. But there's also an exhortation to, for fidelity in marriage. So verse four, marriage should be honored by all and the marriage bed kept pure. Now each time there's a reason attached to the exhortation which I've placed in brackets. Remember last week that I said that this was revolutionary in the first century and now. Some pit these virtues against one another, hospitality, 
openness versus sexual purity, fidelity, you know, left wing, right wing, as if you could enlist Jesus for your culture war. I quoted Dr. Tim Keller from last week, Jesus is not from the right nor from the left, rather he is from above. So he's revolutionary now, but he's also revolutionary in the first century too. And let me show you, in contrast to the Greco-Roman world around them, Christians were different on hospitality and on their view of sex and sexuality. And we know this because Mathetes, writing in the second century, wrote to his friend Diagnotus what was odd about Christians. Now, that's fascinating, isn't it? What was odd about them? In the so-called letter of Mathetes to Diagnotes, he writes this about Christians. They marry, as do all others. They beget children, but they do not destroy their offspring. They don't expose you know, the ones they don't want, usually the girls. They don't do that. They keep them. And get this, right out of the Hebrews 13 playbook, they have a common table, they're hospitable, but not a common bed. They are faithful within marriage and abstinence outside of it. That is, they share their board, not their bed. They open their homes, but not their beds. Now you see how that, that connects right there with Hebrews 13. Whereas in the Greco-Roman world, most shared a common bed. They slept with others because of desire. They did not share, but most did not share a common table. They weren't necessarily hospitable. But Christians, out of their love for Christ, shared their board, not their bed, whereas the Greco-Roman world shared their bed and not their board. Revolutionary. I believe this word of exhortation changed the world. I think the sexual revolution of Christians in the first century was only seriously challenged by the second sexual revolution in the 1960s. We live in the wake of the second sexual revolution, whereas the first one lasted a couple of thousand years. And I believe it's not a stretch to say that the way we're heading is a reversal back to the pagan ways. And so we have now the removal of unwanted babies, desire as an identity marker, that's pagan. No divine constraints around sex. There are constraints, but no divine ones. Sleeping with people you're not married to. Power being the main thing. I'm so glad we've kept consent and the protection of the vulnerable. And I hope we do. I don't know whether we have the st structures to keep it in the next 50 to 100 years. We'll see how we go. If you want to explore this more, and if you have the stomach for it, but this is amazing. I'm now a Rest is History podcast fanatic, Tom Holland. Listen to the recent podcast, a couple of, maybe last week, on the Marquis de Sade, which really is a sexual life without God. Or, if you're not interested in the Marquis de Sade's life, it's pretty rampant, uh, a remarkable essay in uh, the New York magazine, First Things, by the remarkable Louise Perry. Uh, and she wrote an article. She's not a Christian, neither she nor Tom Holland are Christians, 
but she reckons we're repaganizing. We're heading back, not forward. I'm happy to share those two links with you, and you can do that via the Connect card. Back to our text. Chapter 13 is, if the contents of the book is true, then what next? How would our lives be different? And today, if you're following the outline and your orders of service, one don't and three do's. Don't go down rabbit holes. Don't do go outside the camp. I'll explain that. Do offer a sacrifice of praise and learn from shepherds. This is an important agrarian lesson for all you city folk. And then I'll conclude with a glorious benediction. So firstly, the first piece of exhortation is don't go down theological rabbit holes, verses 7 through 9. They go nowhere. If you become a follower of Jesus at a young age or even now, and you have, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50 years to live, 60 years to live, you've got a long life to live. Eugene Peterson called the life of faith a long obedience in the one direction, and it's not easy, like a marathon, not easy. And you might get bored along the way with solid doctrines and lasting treasures. You might wonder if the truth is still out there, especially if you lack contentment. And all you have to do is go and discover it. You'll have many chances throughout your life to go down theological rabbit holes that go nowhere. And so the, the pastor in Hebrews expects it, and so he writes this word of exhortation, verse 9. Do not get carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. It's good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace, not strengthened by eating ceremonial foods. There's your rabbit hole in the first century, which is of no benefit to those who do so. Now, we don't know exactly what the strange kinds of teaching were. We can place it together with other parts of the Bible, but it probably involved eating ceremonial food. So it's ritualistic of some kind. Might have even been Jewish customs that the writer now calls strange. But that's not our issue. Not that I know of. I think our issues come via the internet. There is nothing that you can't find on the internet if you want to go and find it, which means there's so much junk. There's infinity junk on the internet. And sifting through it, if you go looking, all the various assertions and arguments of very belligerent people, it's not easy if you're trying to find theological truth on the internet. Some quick tips, you ready? If you're surfing the net for theological truth, number one, if it sounds wacky, it probably is. Two, if the writer uses caps all the way through and multiple exclamation points is probably strange teaching. Three, if the teaching is based on one or two obscure passages of the Bible, look, then it's probably strange teaching rather than the whole. And this is an odd one and maybe it's peculiar to me, but if the writer has assertions with brackets and 10 Bible references after each assertion, it's infuriating because the assumption is these texts prove my point without actually proving they build your point. Whenever I see Bible references all over a page, I actually get suspicious of the argument. And lastly, if they claim that their minority idea is the only truth, then run like crazy. But the pastor in Hebrews 13 gives us three ways to not get sucked down theological rabbit holes. The first is, your leaders are a resource. Use them, verse 7. Remember your leaders 
who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. It assumes non-toxic leadership. It assumes healthy leadership. Seriously, um, you know, if you find something strange on the internet, run it, run it past me. Run it past Emma. Run it past Rob Forsyth. You see him here regularly. Bring it to your community group. We'll help you. I think verse 7 coupled with verse 8, is about learning in community with solid leadership, which I believe we have here at Church Hill, and there'll be a chance to share your thoughts, or Q&A, really, if you want, after this message in a few moments' time. Second bulwark against uh, strange teachings is in verse 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Jesus Christ is the constant, not the suffering, not the new ideas. Do not order your life by the variable but rather order your life by the constant. Do not be sucked into the new things because it's novel, it's not necessarily true. It's probably not true if it's novel. Look for solid ground in Jesus, who's the same yesterday and today and forever, who was and is and always will be. And third, measure your strange teaching against the doctrines of grace, verse nine. It's good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace, not by the strange teachings, which are of no benefit to those who fall down the rabbit hole. So if your pastors think it's nuts, it probably is. If it takes you away from Jesus, it's definitely nuts. If you're not strengthened by grace and grace alone, you are being weakened by a strange doctrine, which is of no benefit to you. So first, don't go down rabbit holes. Second piece of advice, do, don't go down the rabbit hole, do go outside the camp. Verses 10 through 14, the writer ducks you back into the world of Jewish sacrifices and his exhortation is in verse 13. Let us then go to him, to Christ. Let us go to Jesus Christ outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore. Now, what does he mean? What's he talking about? It means that Jesus is not found in the center of power. God has always worked at the margins all along. And if you follow any of the work of the Holy Spirit in mainland China over the last 50 years or through the Soviet years, through Russia. You'll see all the attempts of, of, of centers of power to squash faith, and you can't do it. You can't do it. And that's where you'll find Jesus, not inside the camp, but outside the camp, not pampered on the inside, but indeed crucified on the outside. Let me show you. Verse 10 makes the assumption that there are continuing sacrifices when the writer of Hebrews was writing, there are, were, were priests who minister at the altar in Jerusalem, and you have something better than them. Verse 10, we have an altar, a heavenly one, from which those who minister at the tabernacle in Jerusalem have no right to eat. They don't trust Christ. But you have a right that the Jewish high priest access that the Jewish high priest doesn't have. How? Well, it's a strange argument, but with a simple point. Verse 11, the high priest is all Old Testament, carries the blood of the animals, the killed animals, into the most holy place as a sin offering. That's true in history. But the bodies of the animals that have been sacrificed are then taken and burnt outside the camp, a point made in Leviticus. You can see it right there on the screen. Leviticus 16, bull the goat whose blood was brought into the most holy place to make atonement must be taken outside the camp. The hides, the flesh, intestines are to be burnt. And the writer of Hebrews, strangely, but not 
dissimilar to half of, Levitic, uh, half of uh, Hebrews, says, it was ever thus, verse 12. And so, just like the bodies of those animals, Jesus also suffered outside the city gate, we call it Golgotha, to make the people, you and me, holy through his blood, through his sacrifice. And since he suffered outside the camp, we, by faith, go to him there. Verse 13, let us then go to him outside the camp, which means to bear the disgrace that he bore. And the reason is that you've got a better hope to live for, so you can endure the disgrace. Verse 14, for here we do not have an enduring city, not here, but we do have one in the city that's to come, that we're looking for. Back, back to chapter 11. So what's the lesson? It's very tempting to look for an inner circle of power and then pursue it or to try to, try to stay close to it. You know, we believe that the closer we get to the center of power, the more we can feel stable or powerful or feel included, that we have a seat at the table in some form. But the writer of Hebrews says that the true place of salvation and stability is not in the inner circle, the temple in Jerusalem, but rather outside the camp. It's not like get close to the parliamentarians, get close to the bishops and archbishops, and then you'll have power. This is not the way of God. Jesus suffered away from the center of power, and what is true for Jesus must be true for them then and for us now. Let us then go to him outside the camp. In other words, bearing the disgrace he bore, being willing to do so. I think one of the ironies of the book of Hebrews is that the place that feels, feels unstable, following Jesus, even in persecution, is indeed the most stable place, for in him we have an anchor for our souls. Stephen makes the same argument when he was stoned to death in Acts chapter 7. He says, God has always worked outside your power structures, always has. Look at China, look at the so former Soviet Union. I met a guy here who took this microphone, he was from Syria, and he was Syrian Orthodox, Christian, you know, his family had been Christian for centuries, but he didn't really believe, you know, he wasn't actually a follower of Jesus, he was just, you know, broadly Christian and not Muslim. But by golly, when his home was burnt down, God lit a fire in his soul that he'd never experienced. God has always worked outside the powers that be. And Stephen says, the prophets you killed were the ones that God used. It was ever thus. And if true hope then lies in being shamed away from centers of power, then God give me courage to choose the weaker path, to choose Jesus. Here's classic C.S. Lewis. If you want to get warm, you must stand near the fire begs the question for a Christian, what is the fire? That I should get near it to be warm. If you want to get wet, you must get into the water, begs the question, where is the water that you would become wet in? So if you want joy, power, peace, eternal life, you must get close to or even into the thing that has them. <clears throat> His name is Jesus Christ. He's the fire, he's the water and he suffered outside the camp. Three, do offer a sacrifice of praise. So what do we then do with our lives? Get a bit more moral, 
Get a little bit better, improve, maybe. But here, we worship God. Not only with our lips, but our lives as well. Verse 15, through Jesus, the true worshiper, through Jesus, the, one, the only one who worshiped God the way he's meant to be worshiped. You know, we all fail. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise that is the fruit of lips that openly profess his name. And it must have implications on the ground in life. Do not forget to do good and to share with others for with such sacrifices, God is pleased. This is true worship. We praise him, openly professing his name. We do good, we share with others. In other words, we love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We love our neighbors as ourselves. I think the old 1662 Book of Common Prayer, at the conclusion of the uh, communion service, and the communion service is basically, you've done the sacrifice necessary for me to know God. Yeah, the communion service in the Book of Common Prayer is, Jesus Christ, you've done it all through your sacrifice. But it concludes with, and here we offer and present unto thee, O Lord, ourselves, our souls and bodies, to be a reasonable, holy, and lively sacrifice unto thee. It's genius. What do we owe the God who sacrificed his life for us? The answer is nothing. You can't give him anything for what he's given you through grace. And yet at the same time, ironically, everything, your whole life. And lastly then, do learn from shepherds, verses 17 through 25. This is an extended section really on shepherding, that is leadership. Some human leadership matters are being, dis very practical matters are being discussed here. But there's one word about one shepherd, a divine great shepherd or good shepherd, and his name is Jesus. So verse 17, have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority because, like shepherds, they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. Um, you know, we're, they have divine, we have divine judgment on our mind as we care. They must give an account, says the pastor here. So they're not, we're not mucking around. But you have such confidence and submission for this reason. Do this, verse 17, so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no benefit to you. There's a lovely reciprocal nature thing going here. Um, have confidence, submit to them, so that their service of you will be a joy, not a burden, because that will then be a benefit to you. It's a lovely symbiotic uh, relationship going on. If I can put it this way, it, it is a benefit to the sheep if the shepherds are joyful. This is not a blank check to make leaders' lives easier. You must keep us to account. But it might be saying something like, don't make a pastor's life any harder than it is. Why? Because it's better for you if they do their work with joy. And then verses 18 to 19, pray for us, writes the pastor, with a pastoral word in verse 22. I urge you to bear with my word of exhortation. I've written to you briefly. We've done that in this series, we've worked on the letter, a year of hope, then a word about Timothy in verse 23, and a final word in verse 24, greet all your leaders and all the Lord's people, those from Italy send you their greetings, which might mean 
that the writer is writing to people who are in Italy. Let's send the greetings to them. Then verse 25, the final word is grace be with you all. There's the book. Now, remember, what happens next? What's the next thing to happen after this book is received and read by its original recipients? What's the next thing? It's not parsing verbs and nouns. It's not the book of Hebrews in some theological institution. It's the suffering to come. That's the next thing to happen to the recipients of this letter. That's why he wrote the confiscation of property yet to happen, the prison terms, the exclusion from polite society and even death itself. And so he concludes with a glorious benediction, a beautiful good word from above. Because in this section about leadership, the writer turns to Jesus. Your leaders here are deeply fallible, deeply fallible, but Jesus isn't. So I want to leave you with this glorious benediction and the musicians can come forward here because I'm just going to leave you with this benediction and then we'll sing. I want you to note up there on the screen uh, that he's a God of peace. I want you to note up there on the screen the power of the blood of Jesus, the blood of the eternal covenant. I want you to note the power of Christ's resurrection, all themes in the book of Hebrews. And note that this God of peace is able to equip you for everything good this week, tomorrow, when you go to work. I'm going to conclude with this glorious benediction. In fact, I'll ask you to stand. Would you please stand? And if you agree with this, you can say amen heartily. That's true for you at home too. Fords, Colin, Jack, big strong amen, and then write it in the chat channel. And if your amen is not strong enough, I'm going to ask you to repeat it. Is that fair? I'm just giving you fair warning. <laughs> Listen to this. Now may the God of peace who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, may that God equip you with everything good for doing his will and may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Let's sing.